brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. What we're focusing on here this evening is we're focusing on especially verses 11 to 13 of chapter 4 on the teaching of contentment that the Apostle Paul shares for the church in Philippi. Speaking of his own experience with this contentment and also sharing it for the sake of the church as well. And as we work through the teaching of contentment, you also see the teaching of steadfastness in verse 1. You see the joy, prayer, unity. And when we see all these things in this chapter, what's important is to remember a word at the very beginning of this chapter. And this is the word, therefore. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So if you think back to Philippians 3, Philippians 3 provides the basis for this therefore. Look at verse 12 in chapter 3 with me. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Jesus Christ has made me his own by grace. That is the confession of the Christian and a believer. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we want to live for him because we are so thankful for what he has done in forgiving us our sins. You cannot have Philippians 4 without Philippians 3. But Philippians 4 makes sense. It's the logical result of what we read about our salvation in chapter 3. That, of course, is the starting point for this teaching on Christian contentment. True confidence is not found in my own abilities and your own abilities. It is found in Christ. And that was the whole point of chapter 3, to take away that self-confidence in ourselves and to place it solely and fully in Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection being conformed to his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And yet, now, we find that confidence in Christ. And now, we live that Christian life in thankfulness. And of course, there are many distractions in the Christian life from this foundational confidence in Christ that might lead us to complain against God. And yet the Word of God fixes our eyes again on the Gospel, bringing us to contentment in Christ. What Paul shares here is the wealth of Christ for the people of God. What he is basically saying in this passage is this. He says, and this is after a long life, this is at the very end of his life, and we'll look a little bit more at his own experience. But he is basically saying this here. I have no complaints because Christ has saved me from my sins. I am content in him. He has given me everything I need. And so, brothers and sisters, the Christian learns contentment in knowing Christ. And as we work through this portion of Scripture, we'll consider what contentment is. We'll look at the context of Paul's comments about contentment. We'll look at his life circumstances. 
And then we'll also consider how the promises of God teach us this contentment in Christ. But first of all, before we look at contentment and what exactly it is, we should understand how our relationship with Christ affects contentment before we can understand how to be content in the church and in the world. First, we must look up, and the call here in Philippians 1 is to look up to God before we can look out into the world around us. So in verse 10, you'll see the language of the Apostle Paul. He speaks of his joy, but he does not just speak of joy. He speaks of joy in the Lord. He looks up to God and he receives that joy from God. In verse 14, he speaks of the power to be content, but he doesn't find that in himself. He finds that because of the strength of Christ, he's content in Christ. In verses 19 to 20, especially verse 19, he speaks of the riches of glory that are found where? They're found in Jesus Christ, which are supplied to us as Christians in our time of need when we need them. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The call of the apostle in verse 1. If you look back with me to verse 1, he says, stand firm. But do we just stand firm in our own strength? No, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The call in verse 4 is to rejoice. How do we rejoice? Well, we rejoice in the Lord. And so you see that repetition over and over again. And it might be easy to overlook, but it's actually very important to all of these commands because it focuses us, again, on the fact that it all comes from God and it all begins with that relationship with Christ. It begins with a delight in the all-surpassing glory and supremacy of Christ who forgives our sins, who casts them into the sea. And without this starting point, learning contentment is like trying to drive a car that is empty on gasoline. It's like trying to drive a car without fuel because there's, um, we need that strength that comes from above. And that, of course, is what contentment is. Contentment is satisfaction in Christ. It's being full of Christ. Think of the prayer in Psalm 90, verse 14. There the psalmist prays, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. God fills us up. He fills us with his love. Consider the blessed assurance of Psalm 107, verse 9. There we read, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So God fills our souls with his love. Even sometimes in this world when we feel a sense of emptiness, yet our souls are full of his love when we trust in him, and we look to his steadfast love, which never changes and never moves. Whatever your worldly circumstances or situation may be, your soul is full because you know the gospel 
and you know the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. And so, contentment is a very central part of the Christian life. And Paul, when he speaks to Timothy, he reminds them of this, him of this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness is important. Cultivating a godly life, obeying the Ten Commandments, loving God, loving neighbor. But he says to Timothy, godliness combined with contentment is great gain. Christians are warned in Hebrews 13, verse 5, about the love and pursuit of money as a good in and of itself. And there we are warned, keep your life free from the love of money and be, the word here is content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There you have the promise of God, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you can be content with what you have, with where you're at in life. Contentment is being satisfied with less. And even when we have more, because the Apostle Paul also learns to be content when he abounds and when he has more. Even when we have more, if we were to lose everything, then we are confident that this contentment is found in Christ and that Christ will preserve us from those sins of bitterness and complaining that sometimes results when we lose a lot. Contentment, of course, does not take away from godly desire. There are certain desires that are godly and good things. So, for example, you can desire something good in a godly way, like a young person desiring a husband or a wife, and still be content with what you have or where you are at in life. It's a good thing to seek after, and yet there's still contentment in that search. Or think of a businessman. You can grow a business and desire to grow that business even more, and yet still be content with your current place in life, because you're content in Christ. Christ has filled you with peace and hope in him. And we can name off probably 10, 20 good desires. Um, and of course, those good desires are in contrast with evil or sinful or wicked desires, which is the opposite of contentment. Now we should consider the context for the Apostle Paul's comments here. There's a lot of context, especially in verses 14 to 20, that is important. Paul is writing this letter in response to a financial or physical, maybe it's a food gift that he received from the church in Philippi. And that gift is sent to him while he's in prison in Rome um, in order to care for his needs, in order to help him um, in his work, even as he's working from prison in Rome. He has received it from the hand of Epaphroditus. You can read a little bit more about Epaphroditus in chapter 2. And there he praises Epaphroditus for almost laying down his life for the sake of the gospel. Paul later speaks of this gift from the church in Philippi as a fragrant offering. He speaks of it in the highest words. A fragrant offering, pleasing and acceptable to God. So that's in verse 18 where he uses the, the imagery of 
kind of like an Old Testament sacrifice, and yet it's um, it's pleasing to God in Christ because of their love for Him. And so he's very thankful for this gift that he receives from the church in Philippi. And yet, he wants to show the church what it means to be focused on what is most important, what is on the highest importance. And so here in verses 10 to 13, he demonstrates how when he has nothing, even then he is full. As we will see, he also wants the church to know that they also can be full, not primarily with physical things, but with the riches of God in Christ. Once again, verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so he focuses the church in Philippi, again, on what is of highest importance. And so in verses 11 to 13, he breaks out in these words of faith and trust in God. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Very powerful words. This has been called the jewel of Christian contentment. I believe it was by the Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs. This is wealth and riches for the Christian that come in abundance. This Christian contentment in Christ is far more valuable than a million dollar check. Far, far more valuable. This has also been called the secret of Christian contentment and using the language that the Apostle Paul uses here. I have learned the secret. I have found it. I've seen it. I know what it is like. We are full of the love of God even when certain circumstances of life, certain situations of life lead us to be brought low or lead us to, to abound, lead us into humility, lead us to exaltation, all those situations of life, we are full of the love of God. Those who are not Christian do not understand it. It is a secret. Those who do not know Christ may find it confusing. Just as in earlier verses he speaks of the peace that passes all understanding, it's confusing to those who do not know Christ. But the promise here is this. This jewel and this secret, the wealth of it all, belongs to you. It belongs to all of God's people and all of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. I have found the secret. I have those riches in Christ. And the Apostle Paul teaches this from his own life, as he does at many places throughout his letters. We've already mentioned he is writing this from a prison in Rome. He 
very likely knows that the death penalty is hanging over his head. As you read in verse um, chapter 2, he speaks of, um, and I'm not finding the exact verse right now, but he speaks about, at one point there, he speaks about being poured out as a, as a drink offering. So he's preparing for his death. He's standing trial before Caesar. He's got the guards around him. He has stood up in the courts before many charges, and he has defended the preaching of the gospel. This follows on the heels of a life where he was beaten in many towns. He was on the run from the law. He was stoned in other towns. He had mobs raised up against him. And he faced many, many other challenges. More than I think many of us will ever understand, possibly. And yet, he has no complaints. And yet, he says here, while he's sitting in prison, while he has the death penalty hanging over his head, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says again later in verse 12, I have learned the secret. He has learned the secret. Of course, he not only has no complaints, but he also sees the blessings. If you go back to chapter 1, you will see that his imprisonment is for the sake of the gospel. And there in verse 1, we can especially read in verses 12 to 14, And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So you'll see that as a result of his imprisonment for the gospel, many more have learned to preach it without fear. So not only is he content in the situation he finds himself in, but he also sees the blessings and how God is using that situation not to put an end to the gospel, but actually to advance the gospel. Something that the, the, um, the people of that day thought they were doing by throwing Paul in prison was they thought they were putting an end to it. But in fact, they were only making it grow. And that is the part of the secret of contentment, is seeing the blessings that sometimes come through very difficult and trying situations. He speaks at the end of the book, of course, as well about how even those of Caesar's own household greet the church in Philippi along with the saints in Rome. He says that in verse, um, I believe, verse 22 of chapter 4. So he's standing trial before Caesar, and yet it's those in Caesar's own household who are becoming converted and greeting the saints in Philippi along with him. Um, Maybe these were part of Caesar's family. Maybe these were servants in Caesar's household. But they were learning who Christ was through Paul's imprisonment. And so conversions are being made even under these tough conditions. And for that, he rejoices. 
because the gospel is going out. He wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11, of his own sufferings in his life. He says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 27, he writes more about his sufferings. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. But, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Look at that contentment. He is content in Christ, and he's content that through his very weaknesses, the power of Christ is at work, and the power of Christ is going forward. And so, there's no shame for him in that those times of hunger, in those times of abundance, in those times of need. There's no shame for him in those times of being brought low because the power of Christ remains with him. And so you also see in this passage that contentment is something that is learned. It is learned over the course of a lifetime. We don't have it in its fullness now, although we have everything in Christ. Um, once again, you can look back to Philippians chapter 3, where he speaks of not being already perfect, but pressing on to make Christ his own. So contentment is learned. We have everything in Christ, and he gives us everything to learn this contentment in him. And so Paul writes, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He continues, I have learned the secret. When you become a Christian, or when you are a Christian already, you are enrolled in the school of Christ. We go to school or college or university to learn ideas. In the school of Christ, we learn the Word of God. We learn how He speaks to this world. But we also learn things like contentment. In the school of Christ, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us so that we might learn how to live for Christ and delight in Him more and more over the Christian life. He gives us His love and peace and abundance so that we might learn this base not on our own strength, but on His strength, because it comes from Him. So the Apostle Paul continues with this promise in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now you may have seen this on plaques in homes or maybe plaques in Christian schools on the walls. It's a very popular verse. And some misunderstand it maybe to some degree to mean that I can do anything. Like let's say if you're doing the high jump at school, I can win the high jump or I can become an astronaut when I grow up. And Christ does, of course, help people to do that as well. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. In context, the focus is that we can endure anything and all the circumstances of life 
through the strength of Christ, who touches us with his grace and mercy and compassion. And yes, God does sometimes give us more than we can handle, but he then comes along and strengthens us to show that our strength and our ability comes from him. He gives us strength in those moments when we think that there is no strength left to serve him. I know this is a trouble sometimes in the mind of Christians, but maybe you wonder if you can stick it out until the day of the Lord, if you'll persevere until the end of your life. And that is why there is such a deep comfort in the teaching of the perseverance of the saints. And you see that taught here, and you'll see that taught in other parts of the book of Philippians, as we'll see in a moment. It is also important to remember, also to think about how we frame this teaching of the perseverance of the saints, because there is no perseverance of the saints apart from God's perseverance in his saints, the Lord working in the lives of his saints. We don't do this in our own strength, but we stand in the strength of Christ himself. Think back to the promise in Philippians 1, verse 6. There the Apostle Paul is confident that Christ will not only strengthen him and bring him on to glory, but that he is also at work in all of God's people in the church in Philippi. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a a promise. That is hope for the soul. And the promises of God cannot be broken. The promises of God are sure and true. And the Apostle Paul here in verse 13 takes hold of and grasps that promise by faith in Christ. And he says, yes, yes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can stay faithful even though I'm in this prison in Rome facing trial before Caesar. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you have begun the race by his grace, then you will also finish the race by his grace. Because justification is based on the grace of Christ, but sanctification as well, that growth in holiness, is also based on the grace of Christ. The riches of these promises does not just end with Paul's reflections on his own life and his own relationship to the Lord, but he also applies this to the church, as you see in the following verses. These promises are for all of God's people. And so the question is, do you lack? Do you have abundance? Do you face challenges and trials? Do you have many blessings that you experience in your lives? And in all those things, don't forget that we have everything in Christ, both riches and poverty, both when we are brought low, both when we are exalted. Everything is in Christ. Everything is found in Him. And so verse 19, he gives this promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches 
in glory in Christ Jesus. These are the final words of a pastor to the church in Philippi. The promises of God are found in Christ. If you have Christ, you have all the wealth in the world. You don't need the biggest home. You don't need the nicest cars. In Christ, you have all the wealth in the world. And there is a deep joy in that. His glory shines out in all the events and circumstances of life. Again, these words are spoken from a man in prison. Contentment is so often learned in the fires of trial as we rest in the one who has made us his own. As those trials are faced, we can face them because we have the promises of God in Jesus Christ already, even now. We have all those promises throughout the scriptures. So what are some of those promises? Well, we have the forgiveness of sins in Christ. They've been cast away into the sea. We have the promises that Christ is calling together a church for himself in this world, and he will preserve that church, and he will bring that church to perfection, because she is his bride. We share a common salvation. Christ promises us a better city that is yet to come. That gives us strength to endure the challenges of this present age. Christ promises to preserve us and keep us in his grace. He promises to give us strength to serve him. He promises that we have his Holy Spirit with us to comfort us and to encourage us. He is the helper who comes to help us. Christ himself has promised to be with us to the very end of the age, as he promised in Matthew 28, verse 20. And of course, we've just hit the tip of the iceberg of Christian contentment. There's so much more wealth to discover as you read through the scriptures and you see the examples of contentment. You see its applications to so many different situations. He brings comfort and encouragement to those who struggle with chronic illness. He brings it to those who face the dark nights of temptation. He brings it to those who struggle with mental health. He brings it to those who are facing poverty. He brings it to those who are facing the temptations that come with wealth. He brings it to the young child and to the adult and to the elderly, regardless of age. When you belong to Christ, all the riches of the gospel are yours. And so, finally, as we conclude, the book of Philippians is a very powerful, a very powerful account of the triumph and the victory of the gospel. The gospel cannot be chained in a Roman prison. It cannot be held back. The Apostle Paul himself cannot be limited from the experience, the riches and contentment of Christ, even as he sits in a prison cell. Even as he sits in a prison cell with the death penalty hanging over his head, yet the promises of Christ are for him, and they cannot be kept away from him. And in this, the gospel has not only had an effect on his guards, 
but even on those of Caesar's household. The Gospel continues to go out into the city of Philippi, even though Paul is in chains in Rome. You and I, of course, we probably won't end up in prison. We might end up in prison. You never know. We might face sufferings of other kinds. But sometimes we face limitations, and we all face limitations. And in those moments, the Gospel is not chained. The Gospel is not withheld from us. In those moments, we still have the riches of God in Christ. The Gospel cannot be chained, because Christ is in heaven, and Christ promises to be with us to the end of the age. That is the basis for true contentment. Because there's nothing, nothing that can separate you and me from the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. As we read in Romans 8. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the gospel that is announced here. We find the gospel all through this teaching on contentment. Everything we need, whatever situation we're found in, is found in Christ. We belong to Him, body and in soul, in life and in death. And when we belong to Him, when we see Him as Savior and Lord, the riches of His forgiveness and all His promises belong to us. We belong to Him and His riches are ours. Amen. Let's pray.